Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, as we come together around your word, we realize, Father, as the scriptures are read, as you, Father, speak through them, that this is a holy time, a time whereby we reverence you in standing, as it were, on holy ground, And here thus saith the Lord. You tell us, Father, the days will come that you'll send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. You say, Father, there are days will come and when they will heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, but teachers of a particular kind according to their own desires, not yours. And Father, may this not be one of those days. Father, you, co- you tell us that uh, and call us to recognize that you, Father, are above all, yes, in stature, but also in value. Like the pearl of great price, your kingdom, treasure, you and your kingdom, above all this life has to offer. You say, Father, let the wise man not glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. But let them glory in this, that we understand and that we know you, that you are the Lord who in Endures, who exercises loving kindness and grace. One who exercises judgment and righteousness in all things. And so, Father, won't you watch over your word to perform it? Just as the rain comes down and it does not return, Father, and without providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, we know your word will not return unto you empty or void without performing the task unto which you have sent it. Whether it's sent forth in conviction of sin or sent forth, Father, encouragement to those whose hands have grown weary in well-doing. Whether your word goes forth, Father, to direct and give discernment or it is for all of us to see more clearly the glories of your grace in Christ. May all of it be to the edification of your dear saints and to the glory of your mighty name. For it is in the name of our Lord and Savior, our mediator, Jesus the Christ, that we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. At this time, we hear the preaching, but before the reading of the word of God. The reading today from God's Word you'll find in your bulletin. It is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse 10 and going to the end of the chapter. Let us listen to the words of the living God in His sight and in his company. 
for it became him for whom all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted he is able to succor them that are tempted. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning, The Captain and High Priest of God's Children. In the passage that lays open before us, once again we find the building of the argument from chapter 1. It starts with God speaking in these last days in a son. The culmination and fulfillment of all that the prophets have foretold. That first chapter terminated with our Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. At the right hand of the Father on high. There showing him to be the mediatorial king. You see, the difference between one who is merely who is a king and one who is a mediatorial king, is in the Old Testament, let's illustrate it with Israel. God was king. God was, it says in Psalm 103, says Daniel 4, lots of places in the Old Testament. 
the Holy Trinity, God as king. But God ruled through an earthly king, for example, David. And the first order of business for a king when he came to the throne was to take the law of God and write that law so he had his own personal copy. Did not have to go to the temple and borrow one, but there had his own copy and he ruled as God directed in his law and his word according to his will. So really it was God ruling through that man, that man a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to the throne, God and man. And so when he comes to the, came to the throne, you see, it is indeed the fullness of the Godhead ruling as through this king, the one who is both man and God, fully both. And that he rules in righteousness, the scepter of righteousness we saw. And so in the second chapter, it expands on that and delves deeper into the fact of his humanity. And so as we saw here, beginning with a passage out of Psalm 8, for example, in verses 5 and following, we saw last week, where if you were to look at the passage in Psalms, you'd see it begins with the idea of creation. And it talks about the great expanse of the heavens that is above. And it says there, compared to all this expanse of the heavens and the glories that are there, it says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You see the perspective, the contrast. And so here we talked a little bit about that great condescension of the Son, the one who is God transcendent, the one who is holy, the one who is glorious and all-powerful and wealthy beyond all, all understanding and the one who reigns as sovereign in the triune God. And here he is the one who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. A servant for a purpose, and that purpose was that he might fulfill the law of God in our place as a representative. And so the representative headship of Jesus Christ in the covenant promises, but also that he might die as a substitutionary atonement. So both representative and substitute, this is the one who comes. God, holy, eternal God, and man. But fulfilling For man, all righteousness of the Father. Every command, every aspect of his will, the totality of his being existed for fulfilling the Father's will. That and his incarnation qualified him to be our mediator. The active obedience of Christ, we must not lose sight of that. And so beginning there where we left off last time, I look at the captain of salvation, sanctifier of God's children. So when we look here in the verses where we left off last time, in verse, the end of verse 8, he has put all things in subjection under his feet, and he left nothing that's not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things under him. We see Jesus, who made a little lower than the angels, but for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, may taste death for everyone or every people. And so when you're seeing here the one who, he has all authority in heaven and earth. You see that in chapter 1. Ephesians 1, it says he has put all things under his feet 
And he's giving Christ his head over all things to the church. So the point here is, according in principle and in covenant, he has all authority over all things to work all things for the benefit of his church. Including the timing of his coming. If you were to read Second Peter, for example, it says, God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men consider slackness or slowness. But you see that God's delayed this, that all those that are his might be gathered in into the body of Jesus Christ, those he has declared. And so we see not all things put under his feet by observation. Why? Why does he let the heathen rage still? Why are there still those in rebellion against him? Why will he let it go to the end of the age to a great climax, a crescendo, if you will, where he will come and gather his people out after they're under great martyrdom and persecution and deliver them that way because his name is glorified even the more by this means. But also, why would he allow these wicked to fester and to grow Because he's also glorified in his coming and destroying the wicked. And why the judgment? Because God is glorified in his, the Lord Jesus Christ, glorified in his benefits that he gives to his, the redeemed, you see. The rewards, he's pleased to reward his own grace and gifts to us. He rewards them even the more. And he's glorified in his grace For all eternity. And he's also glorified in his condemnation and judgment. Of the lost. Including the arch enemy mentioned here. The devil. God glorified in both. You see. Not just in one. But in both. He's both holy. And gracious. And so when we look here in verse 10. It says it's fitting for him. For whom all things are. And by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Perfect in the sense of complete or qualified. We mentioned this last week that Christ identifies not just with the sufferings associated with the punishment for sin that was the result of the fall. But he also associates with the miseries of sin. You think, what miseries? Well, I can name a bunch. We could think of, uh, how about, uh, I don't know, I've got a big list here. I've got to pick just a few. How about this? Even though he exhibited the love and the compassion in the, of the Lord unto all these people, how many people despised him and hated him for it? Men, you see, they hated the light. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And therefore they would condemn him and reject him. He was a man who knew the idea of abandonment and rejection of men. Acquainted with sorrows. Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12. What an exhibition of that very thing. He identified with our miseries. The miseries of sin. I'd mentioned that last week, so I won't develop it further. But you see that when we think, we see Jesus a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It's talking about the death has an effect. The death had a purpose. 
that Jesus Christ brings into the picture. And that is the fact that he might redeem his people, the church. That's why the captain of salvation. Why was he qualified? You see, as Christ is the one who, even though he was despised of men, he loved in return. Remember the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know, the ones who pounded the spikes into his hands and feet. The ones who shoved the crown of thorns into his scalp. Or the ones who beat him in the face until it says he had no, his visage was so marred more than any man, it says in Isaiah 52. Those, those scoffing and jeering and hating. These are the ones. Father, forgive them. For they know not what to do. Remember Jesus in the, in the garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of suffering. The cup of death. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Several times he says this, doesn't he? You see there, through this agonizing and suffering, you see, here he's qualified, submitting his will unto the will of the Father for the benefit of the redeemed. We see it in chapter 12, for example. It talks about Jesus Christ. He endured the suffering, despising the shame. You and I, we know shame, but we don't know shame like he did. Think of the sinless one, holy, righteous, and good, pure to the very core of his essence, and being that he had a shame that was multiplied times worse than Adam and Eve experienced when they ate of the forbidden fruit, when they hid from the presence of God. Here he was, the sin bearer, the one who bore the adultery, the punishment for it, who bore the shame for, for stealing and for lying, for covetousness, for dishonoring, for murder, for idolatry, for blaspheming the name of the Lord and all of these sins and the corruption and the darkness of all of those who were the redeemed, all of us. And the shame that he felt in our place. You see, that's what it means that here he was qualified, you see, because he bore that despising that shame that he might perform the will of the Father. Qualified. That's what it means. That he was perfected. That means completed. His qualifications fulfilled. And so when we consider through sufferings he was that way. Look at verse 11 with me. And it says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified or are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. It might be a little confusing looking at that if we didn't have the rest of the New Testament. But we do. What in the world can it mean the one who sanctifies? That would be the Lord Jesus Christ. What does sanctify mean, by the way? The one who sets us apart as holy unto God. There, we use sanctification in basically, most often in, in reform circles at least, as progressive sanctification. We understand that as growing in grace, as being conformed to the image of Christ, like Second Peter 3 would describe, like Second Corinthians 3 would describe. 
We think of sanctification where we're dying more and more to sin and being made alive more and more into righteousness. And all of those things are rightfully so progressive sanctification. But there's also the idea of definitive sanctification. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of the elect of all time there at that cross were set apart unto God as his people. You think of Ephesians 1 where it describes God the Father is the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So you see this is a timeless event that comes into time and space in the history of redemption and meets at the cross. And all of those who would be his from the garden to the second coming, the very first and the very last believer, that here are the ones there at the cross. He didn't just make a savable. But the redemption was accomplished. And in time and space, through the effectual call of the gospel, the Spirit quickening us from death unto life and uniting us to Jesus Christ by faith and that we're united to him, there it is applied. Accomplished definitive sanctification and applied by the Spirit. And then in the life worked out in us, purifying and changing and transforming us over time until we're absent from the body and present with the Lord and He glorifies us and makes us holy and pure and righteous and good. Definitively then, what glory that will be. But you see, beloved, the one who sanctifies... And the ones who are being sanctified or have been sanctified or are being sanctified are of one. How does that occur? Union with Christ. That's how. Yes, there is union. Remember, he took on our humanity. There's his union or participation in or identity with or whatever you want to say, but it's much more profound than identity with. There he is with our humanity, taking on our humanity. And they're at the cross, our representative, you see, and our substitutionary atonement. He bore the sins as a new Adam that is a redeemer of his redeemed race of every nation, tribe, and people, and tongue. And there he was a substitute for sin. He bore the wrath of God and fulfilled it. And so we see that all of those are the redeemed He's satisfied for. And so in Jesus Christ, you see, those the Father has given him. Now this isn't new language to us, is it? The union with Christ. Vital union is when he, by the Spirit, unites us. Vital means living. And so we have living union with Jesus Christ. Okay, baptism. Our baptismal tank's right in front of us. Yes, some of you did. A few people ask, where's the baptistry? It's right under that lid. You've seen it. What happens in baptism? What does it represent? I died with Christ. I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised in Jesus Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I'm raised to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. And so you read in the New Testament, in, with, by, and for Jesus Christ. All of us having to do that we are so identified with Jesus Christ. It is, as Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Union with him. Identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And so by the Spirit, through the gospel, when we're at that moment, we, what took place in history, for us almost 2,000 years ago now, we see that we are identified in time with that event, with him. And so the life we live and walk now, we walk by the Spirit, in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, unto Christ. He who sanctifies had to become like those who are being sanctified. Human. That he might be fully mediator of both God and man. And so when we look at this, it describes... In verses 12 and following, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. Paul rightfully read, I think out of the King James, the word is ecclesia, the word we translate as church. In the midst of the church, remember Jesus said, I will, by the way, the word church is used all through the Old Testament in the Greek translation. And so if you want to double check, I'll loan you my Septuagint concordance and you can count the times, over 75 times, that it says ecclesia, 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 ecclesia. Stephen, before the Sanhedrin, said, talked about Moses and the church in the wilderness. That simply means those who are gathered out of the world unto the Lord, like sheep being gathered to their shepherd, called out unto him. Church, ecclesia, ek. Out of kaleo called, called out. That's what we are. Sheep called out unto the shepherd. In the midst of the church, I will declare your praise. Here I am in the children God has given me. He didn't just call us to be soldiers in his kingdom. Not just uh, good civil Citizens, he called us to be God's children. You know, we are united to the Son. And if you read Galatians 4, go read it at home. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And you see there that Jesus Christ came, born of a woman, born in the fullness of time. And it says that he has, we have the spirit of the Son in us, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. And so it is we have the Son, the spirit of the Son in us. And so when we call out to Father, we call him Father because we're in the Son, the only begotten, and we too are sons and daughters in him and can cry by the Spirit, Father. Beloved, the profundity of that is extraordinary. He says, those the Father gave me. I already mentioned Ephesians 1, lots of passages that talk about it. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus in the Gospels, write down John 6. I'll let you read it for yourself, verses 37 and following. Jesus said, all those that the Father has given unto me, 
will come unto me. And those who come unto me, I will by no means cast out. And by the way, all through verses, all the way, it keeps going all the way through verse 44 especially. And it says, no one can come unto me unless the Father draw him. It doesn't mean woo, invite, or beg. The word that's draw there is the same word that's used in James for the, those who are dragging Christians before the magistrate. Okay? The Father draws us. Jesus uses the same description in John 10 where he talks about himself as a shepherd. All those who are his sheep hear his voice. I know them and they follow me. He says, you don't, he says those, you don't hear me because you're not my sheep. You are given unto me. And so those who are given unto him. So many get hung up on when it happened and how it happened. Say, oh no. Here go the Calvinists again. I guess John was a good Calvinist. Oh wait. He preceded Calvin by about 1500 years. No beloved. That's not the part to get hung up over. Here's the part that should seize your heart and soul. He gave me to Jesus Christ. He gave you to Jesus Christ. Think of that, beloved. Given to him. Oh, what a wondrous thing it is. He says, here I am. And the children you have given unto me. He's talking about his church. How blessed, how wondrous it is. No wonder he calls us his church. Thinking of union of Christ. He calls us his body. When you think of spiritual gifts, what are the spiritual gifts to be understood by? It is that we are all to be understood how we participate in various ways, like facets on a diamond, different facets giving different gleams, different glory, different functions, and each of us for the glory of the whole, and it is the whole, the body of Christ. Him. But in verses 14 through 18, I would like for us to look furthermore at the mediator of life to the dead. The mediator of life to the dead. In verse 14, it says, Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And when you think of flesh and blood, that's an idiomatic expression. All of you know what that means? An idiom, a manner of speaking. It doesn't mean he became human only according to this material flesh and of the material blood. Including that, certainly. But we've also shown, like in Acts chapter 2, where he had a reasonable, a real soul. A human nature. But you see, it means human. And so the fact is, because we are subject to mortality, to death, he likewise took on the same, that he might destroy the one who had the power of death. You say, well, that's throwing me. The devil has the power of death? Let me help you. Remember the verses that were being quoted, I, I pointed out, in verses 5 through 8, are out of Psalm 8. 
And it's building on that. You know, what is man that you're mindful of him? You've made him, you know, over the creatures, given him dominion over all things, etc. And if you look at Psalm 8, it talks about creation. It talks about him in creation and what is man that you've... So it connects it directly to that garden event. That's what I'm saying. So in the garden, when he created them, and you see it in Genesis 1, he created Adam and Eve in his own image, and he gave them dominion over the creatures, over the, the etc. You get the idea. And so to restore our, our humanity, remember who was the one who brought death? Well, if you think back, it talks about the devil here, of course. We already know that Jesus Christ came to die, and to rise again, to deal with the devil. What did the devil do? Well, as I've already pointed out, he was in the garden. He was the one who tempted, didn't he? He was the one who uh, said, you will not surely die. But in the day that you eat thereof, God says you'll die, you won't. Not true. God's withholding good things from you. He knows in the day you eat thereof, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Great salesman. That's the way liars and tempters work. And so when we see, it takes us back to that creation event, to the temptation and to the fall. And when you see the power of death, the devil, and all of those who are his followers, from that point, what are they called? The seed of the serpent, aren't they? Of those who are followers, not of the Lord, but of the devil. In John eight forty four. And I won't turn there now because of the brevity of time. Jesus is talking to those who were against him. And he said, you're of your father, the devil. Remember, seed of the serpent? Same thing. You're of your father, the devil. And he says something about the devil that's important for us to note here. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. So you see what happened was mass murder on the part of the devil when he tempted Adam into Eve and Adam, into sin, into eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because he knew, like God had said, that in the day that they ate thereof, they they would surely die. And not just them. Read Romans 5 sometime. But in Adam, all died. In Adam, all were condemned. In Adam, all became sinners. And it's only in that same text it says, in Christ, a new Adam, as it were, instead of death, he brings life. Instead of condemnation, he brings justification. And instead of sin, he brings righteousness. But he's a murderer from the beginning, and it says he's a a father of lies. He says truth doesn't dwell in him. So this is the one with whom we're dealing in this text, the devil. Well, here it says Christ came to destroy the devil, this one who had the power of death. In Revelation chapter 1, 18, you all know this verse, I'll bet you. It says there, Jesus says, in fact, I am he who lives. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to Hell and death right here. What do keys mean? Authority. How did he get the authority over death? Life and death. Remember the qualification? 
holy, righteous, and good. The only sinless one to die a death he did not deserve. He was sinless. Everybody else who's died deserved it. And so he has the keys to death and hell. Here it talks about he lives in Revelation 1 forevermore. In Colossians 2.15, just write that down. Remember what it says? It says there that Jesus Christ, by the death on the cross, verse 14, it says all of those ordinances and laws that were against us and condemned us, it says the certificate of debt of that which was against us, Christ nailed to the cross. And he says, by this, or in him, he disarmed the principalities and powers. He set them to open shame, and he triumphed over them in the cross of Christ. And in Acts 2.24, remember what Peter said as he preached, and he talked about God the Father attesting to Jesus Christ by signs and wonders. He said, and death could not hold him. He did, God would not suffer his Holy One to see decay. Why? Because he was the Holy One. Romans 1, 1.4. When it talks about the Son of God, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, and he was raised by the Spirit of holiness. Doesn't mean Holy Spirit. Certainly the Holy Spirit, but it's worded that way. The only place in all the New Testament to emphasize the point He was raised because he was sinless and holy. He partook of flesh and blood that he might destroy the one who had the power of death. We'll deal with that a little more in just a second. And so how does his doing this have anything to do with us? Look at verse 15. The word that's translated in my translation anyway, it says to release Those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's a good translation, but there's a better one. The best way to translate that word is set free. Same idea, but it's more clear. To set free those who through fear of death were subject in bondage all their lifetime to fear of death. Think of it, beloved. Bondage. He came to set us free. And so Jesus Christ said 2,000 years ago, and it's true until he comes back again, turn with me to John 5, 24. Why? Because I want you to write this down. Circle it. You say, I don't write in my Bible like you do. Okay. Then remember this verse. This is one of the most precious verses, to me anyway, in this regard. Jesus said this about the gospel, about what he would accomplish and what we're talking about. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Let all of those phrases soak in. This is what happens in the gospel. It says he delivers us to destroy the devil, the power of death. The one who, through deception, 
keeps people in bondage and in fear. And so here, he, the gospel is one. If we believe it through faith, trust, and rest, and embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we shall not come into judgment that have passed from death. Have passed, perfect tense, from death unto life. Life in him. That's the gospel. Christ said, also in John 12, if you wanted to look at that, I won't turn there. But Christ was resurrected and ascended. And when you think of what he says there, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And he says, all peoples will come unto him under the cross, redemption and satisfaction for sin. And so when Jesus said that the ruler of this world is cast out, talking about, in that sense, the devil, through the deception of sin. And so here, how? Sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What is sin? For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Be ye holy as I am holy. In other words, all of us fall short. And so how did Jesus satisfy? Well, I'm glad you asked. When the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected and ascended. Revelation chapter 12 Look at verses 5, verse 9, and verse 10. It describes something that occurred, and it talks about the child was born, and that the child that the woman gave birth to, the, the dragon was waiting to devour him as soon as he was born. But it says this child was born, and that ultimately the child was caught up to be in heaven. And it says, therefore, the accuser of the brethren is cast down. That would be the devil. Job, remember Job? Job, remember the devil comes before the, the throne of God and he says, where you been? And he says, running to and fro on the earth. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And he says, you've put a hedge around him. I can't let it me at him and he'll curse you. You know the whole account of Job. But you see the point there, he had access to heaven. No more. Why? Because now there's one who is fully God and fully man, who's there as our great high priest, who is our propitiation, the satisfaction, whoever lives to make intercession for us. You say, well, that's easily said. Can you prove it? Yeah. I'll prove it. Romans 8, turn there with me. We've seen it before. Maybe now the dots will connect a little better. In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and through 35. Who shall bring a charge? That's an accusation. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What does justify mean? Justify means declared to be righteous and forgiven in Christ. His righteousness imputed to us, our sin imputed to him, satisfied at that cross. It is God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen and is even, here we are, at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Did that soak in? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God has declared us justified. Who will condemn us is Jesus Christ who's at the right hand of the Father pleading what? Pleading his propitiation, pleading his satisfaction, his paid in full, his righteousness. And by the way, how long? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, talking about the eternity of Jesus Christ. And it says, he ever lives to make intercession for us. No interruptions, no weakening. He lives to make intercession for us. There, you see, is deliverance from the power of Satan. No more can he come and make an accusation against you, against me. No more. Christ made a propitiation, it says. You know what a propitiation is? It has it here in Hebrews chapter 2, talking about Christ as a great high priest. Notice there in verse 17, he was made in all things like his brethren. 2.17 of Hebrews. In all things made like his brethren. Think of that. In all things, not with sin, but in all things made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Propitiation means satisfaction. Let me just give you one verse to write down in this regard. Hebrews 9, verse 14. You can write down 15 too if you like. Think of him in his full humanity and his full deity here for a moment. In his humanity, you think he had to be human in order to be a sacrifice, didn't he? God cannot die. Of course, fully to be mediator at all. But I mean, the whole point here is especially in the wording of this verse is what I'm getting at. It says, not by the blood of lambs, bull and goats and the ashes of a heifer. But speaking of Jesus Christ. Now think, where was the atonement made? Where was satisfaction made? In the ultimate way, in the ultimate place it could be. Within the persons of the Godhead. It says here, let me read it for you. It says in Hebrews 9, 14. Speaking of those purifying of the, those things like ashes of a heifer, purifying the flesh, it says, but how much more shall the blood of Christ Now listen to this. So here we have Christ, the blood of Christ. Certainly thinking of him and his humanity, aren't we? The blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit, here's the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, offered himself, still Jesus Christ, but as mediator, God-man mediator, offered his blood through the eternal spirit, Offered himself without spot to God, God the Father. How shall that not cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see how that works?
He is the one who sealed the new covenant with his own blood. Satisfaction made in the ultimate sense. Made in the most intimate way. The Son. Remember, one essence with Father and Spirit. One God. Eternally existent in in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But one God. And here, adding to himself humanity. A human nature. A human body. A reasonable soul. And join remaining fully God and fully man. The Son. The eternal Son of God. He's the one who offered By the Spirit to the Father. Propitiation. Satisfaction for me and you. There is our mediator. Let me just point out something here. A few things. And I'll quit. First of all, never give up on anyone. As I've just shown you, the satisfaction that Jesus Christ renders here is that far and above, ultimate and perfect, above our imagination. Never think that anyone is too evil, too hard, too far gone to be forgiven. You might know some people you've given up on. Declare the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's what he says. Well, there's more. Consider this great high priest, this one who is our mediator. As a believer, don't ever consider yourself as having done something unforgivable. We have a mediator who is deep and steadfast in his mediation. And so when we think of what is the automatic response so often when one sins as a Christian who fails the Lord, who sins terribly or does something horribly rotten. Pray, seek him out. So often it's just the opposite. In shame and self-disgust and self-loathing. In self-alienation. We don't cry out and come to the mediator we should We need so desperately, but instead recoil away. Don't do that. He's there as our great high priest, our mediator. Yes, fallen his feet in repentance. Yes, declare, Lord, I've sinned against you and dishonored your name. I'm not saying that, but I am saying he's there as our mediator. Flee to him. Furthermore, I want us to note the world's love is fickle, isn't it? You can avouch for that. But our mediator is steadfast. Remember in Romans 8, that passage I mentioned where it talks about, you know, who can bring a charge. It says, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? And it goes through this list. It talks about tribulation and sword and peril. It says principalities and powers, things present, things to come. Can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ? And the answer there, unequivocally, no. Beloved, that should strengthen your soul. And the assurance 
and the joy should be ours. Fourthly, did you notice there that here he is in the midst of the church with all of those you've given me? Do you remember? You see what he's doing? I will sing your praise. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ leading us as our mediator in praise, in worship. You see, beloved, it is through him we offer our prayers. It is through him we offer our worship. It is through him, our mediator, all of it comes together. And so there we see our great mediator come to him in faith and find peace and courage when the tempter would cause you to fear death. Yes, that's in the text, remember? He has set us free from the fear of death. In reality, all of us, if Christ has not come before, will face the specter of death. I love that 1 Corinthians 15 passage, don't you? Where it says, he has taken the sting out of death. I've used the illustration before of the little child that's allergic, you know, to bee sting. In the back seat, and the bee gets into the car while dad's driving, and he dad, dad, there's a bee in the car, I'll die. Dad reaches out and grabs the bee. The child calms down and he lets the bee go again. No, Dad, he's loose again. He says, that's all right, son. He can't hurt you. I have the stinger in my hand. Christ is the one who bore the sting of death to set us free from the fear of death. How many martyrs can attest to the courage and reassurance that gives them when they're faced with the ultimate challenge deny Christ or die remember Polycarp of Smyrna here he was faced with the denial of Christ to live or to be burned at the stake if he did not. And he said, why do you wait? My Lord has not done anything to me that would cause me pain or shame. Why should I deny my Lord now? Get on with it, that I might see him. You see, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Why? Our mediator has conquered and ever lives to make intercession for us. Oh, may God strengthen our souls because of it. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Righteous Father, what an amazing thing we look at your word, and in that amazing chapter of eight of Romans, and how fitting the beginning and the end, most certainly bookends to an incredible 
chapter declaring your truths and what you have done. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing shall be able to separate us from the love that is in him. May we know and remember that no matter what takes place in the life that we live, may we live it by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray, O Lord, that we would never, ever lose sight of what was done almost 2,000 years ago that will be applied to all who place their faith in him. And that faith we realize and acknowledge before you is not a faith from ourselves, but it is a faith that was a gift of you, O God, that we praise you and thank you for. In Jesus' name, amen. Now receive the benediction of the Lord. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.